0: الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن وله أما بعد. In our last halaqah, in our last weekend, or last Wednesday when we began, we began talking about the khasais or the specialities of our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And we mentioned around 15 of them and the fact of the matter is that there are closer to 50 special things that only he was given and no other person was given. Today inshaAllah ta'ala we will continue uh, talking about his characteristics and his appearances and his mannerisms. And as I told you last week, the purpose of this is to give you a little bit of a taster of the seerah. We're not gonna begin the actual life for another 2-3 weeks. But I want to give you a little bit of a taster, a little bit of a summary if you like, a bird's eye view. So we get the uh, summary of who exactly our Prophet ﷺ was. And we will begin today by talking about his physical appearance how he used to look, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And realize that it is the sunnah of Allah, it is the custom of Allah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends prophets and messengers with the most perfect characteristics, inner and outer. And the reason he does so, is so that mankind has no reason to reject this messenger. Every messenger has come with the most perfect characteristics, the most perfect mannerisms, and also perfect images as well. So the prophets as a general rule are all handsome in nature, and they are all with beautiful characteristics. And as we know, the Prophet Yusuf was given half of all beauty. And some scholars say that half of all beauty means half of all beauty of mankind. And this is the majority opinion. But there is another opinion as well. And I'm just mentioning this because to tell you there is another opinion there. And that is some scholars say that when the Prophet said half of beauty, he actually meant half of his own beauty. This is one opinion as well. He actually meant that half of his own beauty, because, according to this opinion, the Prophet Muhammad is the most handsome and the most jamal of the entire creation. He has the greatest jamal of the whole creation. And so they say when he is saying he's been given nisfal Husn or, or half Shatar al Husn is the hadith, half of beauty. Some scholars have interpreted this to mean half of his own Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's beauty. And we have Many characteristics that have been described, the physical features of our Prophet ﷺ. And some of the more beautiful ones are, for example, Ar-Rubayya binti Mu'awwith, one of the sahabiyat. When her son asked her, what was the Prophet like? This is later on after he has passed away, and she is now an old lady. So people are coming to eagerly describe the Prophet ﷺ. And so all she could say, and this is reported in uh, At-Tabarani's Kabir, and also al Bukhari's uh, Book Al-Manaqib. Uh, all she could say was, Ya bunay oh my dear son, if you were to have seen him, you would have thought that the sun had risen up. So he could describe, I don't know how to describe it to you. If you were to have seen him, you would have thought that the sun has now risen up. This is the rising sun. And it is amazing that Rubai' describes him as a sun, beautiful sun, Ka'b ibn Malik describes him as a moon. Ka'b ibn Malik, another famous companion, that he said that whenever the Prophet ﷺ was happy, his face would light up as if it was the full moon. And it is beautiful that the Sahaba are describing the Prophet ﷺ with what they know to be the most beautiful, and that is the sun and the moon. So we have one Sahabi as she's saying he's like the sun shining, another one is saying he's like the full moon. And one of my favorite uh, introductions if you like to this whole topic, we're not actually describing him yet, we're simply saying how the Sahaba could not describe him. They couldn't describe how how handsome he was, because it was too much for them. And my favorite tradition of Allah, it is a tradition, it almost makes you want to cry when you listen to this. And this is the beautiful tradition of Amr ibn al-As. Amr ibn al-As is this sahabi, Amr ibn al-As used to be of the leaders of the Quraysh, who were against Islam. Amr ibn al-As is of the mala, he's of the noblemen who rejected Islam. He's like Abu Sufyan, he's like Khalid ibn Walid, this category of people who were noble enemies. They weren't evil enemies, right? What I mean by this, you cannot compare them to Abu Lahab, to Abu Jahal. These are the, 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 the vulgar enemies. Uh, there was a group of people, they opposed Islam, but they didn't stoop to dirty tactics. And the amazing thing by the way, and we'll talk about this later on, Allah guided all of them to Islam. And this shows that amongst the kuffar, there are two categories. Those who have a good heart, you say this, well Allah, we can say this, that they had a good heart. And because they had a good heart, Khalid ibn Walid, Ikrimah the son of Abu Jahl. Amr ibn al-As, right, Abu Sufyan. Their hearts, they had amount of good in them. No, they had nobility. But they opposed Islam. And Allah guided all of them to Islam. Because, Allah knew there was good in their hearts, right? Whereas the others, they weren't like this. So, Amr ibn al-As is of those who converted to Islam very late. And he only had the opportunity to be a sahabi, basically for a few years, two years or so, or a little bit more than two. And later on in his life, and he lived a life of political career, he lived a life of grandeur and majesty, he became the vizier of Muawiyah, he lived a grand life. Amr ibn al-As later on would say, that there was nothing that was more sweeter to me, more beloved to me, than to... Stare at the face of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Now I want you to pause here. This is not how a man talks usually, right? There was nothing more beloved to me than to stare at the face of another person. It's not how a man talks, but the beauty of the Prophet is so overpowering. His jamal, his nur is so great that Amr ibn al As is saying there was nothing that I got more peace from, more serenity from. More ahla was no nothing sweeter than to simply look at the face of the prophet sallallahu alaihi and yet and he said and he said and i could never get enough of looking at him i never got tired there was no malal. i never got tired of looking at him and yet were you to ask me how he looked i couldn't describe him were you to ask me how he looked i couldn't describe him why he said because Along with this desire to stare at him, there was also this awe, this reverence that I had, that couldn't allow me to just stare directly at him, and I'd have to lower my face. In other words, there are two emotions. If you like, there's two powers, if you like. I don't like being metaphysical, but there's two types of powers emanating from the Prophet The first of them, he's attracting Amr's vision to him. And the second is that awe, that that overpoweringness that Amr cannot stare directly. This is Rasulullah How can you stare at him? You have to sit with dignity. You have to sit with what we call an Arabic haybah and wakar. You show a type of, of, of dignity in front of the Prophet wasallam. And therefore he's saying, even though I love to stare, I couldn't stare. And because of this, I'm all, always battling between these two emotions. I really cannot do justice in describing the Prophet sallallahu It's a beautiful hadith that shows us, and this is coming from somebody, he is a nobleman of the Quraysh. And yet this is how humbled he was, just by the appearance. Just by the the shakal, if you like. Just by the surah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wa sallam. And if Amr ibn al-As could not stare at him as much as he desired, and this is a beautiful point by the way as well, most of the descriptions of the Prophet sallam, they come from the younger sahaba. Not from the older sahaba. And of the greatest or the most uh, explicit descriptions is from Anas ibn Malik, who was a little kid. So Anas does not have the same type of, if you like, emotions that the elder Amr ibn al-As has. And Anas ibn Malik, he was introduced to the Prophet when he was seven years old. His mother came to him and she gifted her son as a servant. And basically, Anas would wake up and run to the Prophet's house, stay there all day, and then go back to his mother's house. So he would serve the Prophet, ﷺ, fetch him water, do this and that for him. So this is Anas ibn Malik. And so Anas ibn Malik has given us one of the most explicit descriptions of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And this is found in the Shama'il of At-Tirmidhi. Anas ibn Malik says that the Prophet Sallallahu was neither very tall such that he stood above the crowd, nor was he short such that he would be ignored. He was in the middle. He was of a medium stature. And the Prophet was neither extremely white, and nor was he a ruddy brown. Now, pause here for a while. The Arabs, they called what we call white, they called it yellow. They called it yellow. What we call white is the Caucasian color, white. Okay, and this is generally called asfar. And that's why they called the Romans banul asfar. They call the Romans the tribe of the yellow people. Just like over here the American Indians, what did they call? Whites, pale face, right? This is not a skin color that they're familiar with, okay? Generally speaking, when the Arabs use the word white, it is a lightish brown. This is their, what they call white is a lightish brown. It's not the white that we consider Caucasian white. Okay, that white they called asfar, which then was, it's not really white, it's yellowish to them. That's how they considered it, okay? So, the Prophet ﷺ was a very lightish color of, of brown. The actual skin color that he had was a lightish color of brown. He, a lot of people say he was white. No, he's not white. When we, the English word white, no. When we say the word white, that means he is Caucasian color. No, he wasn't. And by and large, the Arabs were not of that color. Right? The Romans were of that color. The Arabs, they had a different color. So the Prophet had a lightish brownish color. So Anas ibn Malik is saying, neither was he purely on that side, nor was he ruddy brown, nor was he the rusty brown color. He was in the middle. The Prophet's hair was not in curls, nor was it straight. It was firm hair like most men's hair is. And Anas ibn Malik said, that I never felt any velvet or silk softer than the hand of the Prophet sallallahu wasallam. His hand was very soft, softer than velvet and silk. And he said, nor did I smell a musk or a perfume more fragrant fragrant than the sweat of the Prophet sallallahu wasallam. In other words, his natural odor that would emanate from him, the natural odor that would emanate from him, Anas ibn Malik said, I never smelt any fragrance more sweeter than this smell. And of course you know that, uh, Umm Salam and others, when the Prophet ﷺ would go to sleep, she would in fact collect his sweat in a jar. So it's hot, there's no AC, there's no fan, he's sweating. So she would collect this sweat in a jar, in a small bottle. Why? They would use it as perfume. They would use it as perfume. And they would also use it as medicine. Put it in a drop of water, like this is their medicine. They put it in some water and they drink it. This is the Sahaba. They're living with him. They see with themselves. They they smell. They see the reality of the the miracle of the Prophet ﷺ. Al Bara ibn Azib described the Prophet and he said the Prophet ﷺ was of medium stature. رجل مربور. He was of medium stature. He wasn't extremely tall, six foot six, nor was he short, you know, five foot. Six. No, he was in the middle of an average stature. And he had broad shoulders. His hair was thick. And by the way, this thickness of hair and lusciousness of hair has been narrated by at least five different sahaba. Kathif al-Lihya and his, and his, his beard is, is, is very bushy. And his hair is very full. And the Prophet ﷺ would usually grow it until it went down to his earlobes. And then he would shave it all off. Let's say he went for Umrah or something, or Hajj, he would shave it all off. But it would typically be low to the earlobes. you would have a full uh, hair. And Al-Bara Ibn Azib said, that once I saw him wearing a red hullah, hullah is a cloak, a, a, a thing you put over, a, a type of, what we would call it a jacket, let's say they didn't, they didn't have the arms, but over that. And he said, مَا رَأَيْتُ أَحْسَنَ minhu قَطْ I never saw anything more beautiful than him on that night that I saw him wearing that red ullah. I never saw anything more beautiful than that. And Ali ibn Abi Talib, the cousin of the Prophet he also described in a lot of detail the Prophet And he said, and of course Ali was his... Cousin, Ali was somebody who grew up with him and knew him even before the risalah began. And Ali was his son-in-law. So Ali is a close family member who definitely has seen the Prophet ﷺ more than many of the other sahaba. Ali ibn Abi Talib says that the Prophet ﷺ did not have a very fleshy face, nor was it completely round. They're trying to describe him as being, is that imagine now, they don't, we're not allowed to draw pictures obviously, the sahaba didn't draw, so they're trying to use words to get the imagery across. So they're saying, he wasn't like this, and he wasn't like that, he was in the middle. His face wasn't fleshy, nor was it round, it was slightly ovalish. He had a, Whitish skin tinge. And as I explained before, what they meant by this, a white with, he said, white with a reddish tinge. And what they mean by this is, as I said, a lightish brown. It's not the pure white, it is the lightish brown. His eyes were large, with jet black pupils. So he had black eyes, his eyes were large with jet black pupils, and his lashes were long. His joints were large as was his upper back. So you could clearly see the fingers on his joints, his upper back is broad. The Prophet was broad shouldered. And he did not have hair all over his body, he wasn't hairy on on his body, he had hair on his head and uh, and the beard was full, but he did not have hair on his body, but he did have a fine line of hair extending from the chest to the navel. The chest to the navel. So he had the normal masculine hair that is there. When he walked, he would walk briskly, fast. It is sunnah to walk fast. When he walked, he would walk briskly, as if he's descending down a slope. In other words, he's so fast, it's as if he's walking down a slope. Some scholars have also said that it is as if Allah made the earth mudhallal. So Allah made the earth uh, humble to him. That wherever he's walking, it's as if the earth is is, is giving him the place to walk. Right, uh, And others said this is metaphorical, what it means is that uh, that the Prophet would walk briskly, and he's walking so fast that most of us, we can only walk like that when we're going down an inclined plane. And that is how he would generally uh, walk. When he turned, he would turn to face with his whole body. So he's walking, somebody calls him, he doesn't say yes, no. He turns to face him with his whole body. And subhanAllah, modern pre- presenters and modern speakers, they tell you the exact same advice. That when you speak to somebody, never speak with your head turned. Turn your whole face him, speak with him one on one. And this we find written 14 centuries ago. And As a footnote here, just a side point, I read a lot of books about public speaking, a lot of books about present, presenting and whatnot. Wallahi, every single point of benefit that we find, we find that the Prophet ﷺ, he has exactly done this. And I've wanted to give a lecture, maybe someday I will, about the speaking techniques and style of the Prophet ﷺ, and how perfect it was. And here we find one thing, just off the top of my head, remembering this, that this is one of the advice that the speakers, uh, uh, committees always give. Turn and face the entire body, face the audience like that. Never just turn the head. Here we find Ali ibn Abi Talib saying, whenever he would turn, he would turn with his whole body, to face the person he is talking to. Between his two shoulders was the seal of the prophethood. Now we're going to talk about this inshaAllah in a few weeks. The Prophet had a physical khatam, physical seal. A physical something that Allah gave him on his body, on his jasad. And this was to be a sign by which he would be recognized by other people. So the Prophet ﷺ had a physical sign, and this sign is the seal of the Prophets. And, and Ali ibn Abi Talib says, he had this seal, and he was the seal of the Prophets. He is the Khatim, and he had the Khatim. What is this Khatim? We're going to talk about it later, but it is basically a outgrowth of hair in an area where hair does not grow, and it is of a different color. And it was between his shoulder blades shaped like a pigeon's egg, an oval, small oval like a pigeon's egg. And it was in a place that nobody's hair grows over. And that's all it was, it wasn't any growth of skin, it wasn't anything abnormal. A small, uh, if you like, growth of hair of a different color than the usual color of his body, of the hair. And it was in between his shoulder blades, at the bottom of the shoulder blades, over there. And Ali ibn Abi Talib says that between his two shoulder blades was the seal of the prophethood. We're gonna hear about this later on, when a number of people accepted Islam, most famously Salman al-Farsi. Salman al-Farsi accepted Islam because his Christian teacher had told him that the sign of the prophet is that he's gonna have the seal between his two shoulders. And so when Salman al-Farsi came, and this is the story we're jumping the gun here. Salman al-Farsi came to the Prophet I'm testing him. Does he have the signs or not? One day he came, he had the first sign, check, he went home. Second day he came, he had the second sign, check, he went home. And these two signs were physical, apparent signs, nothing on the body. The third sign is on the the shoulder. How am I going to see the shoulder? So the third day Salman al-Farsi comes, he's wondering, how am I going to see the Prophet is wearing a shirt? How am I going to see his shoulder? So he walks behind, trying to see maybe... Maybe, you might know, I see something, I don't know. And when the Prophet saw him walking behind, subhanAllah, the Prophet Sallam lowered his shoulder, lowered his, his shirt and showed him. Just without a word being passed. The Prophet Sallam just lowered it and showed him. You want to see? Khalas, I'll show it to you. Here it is. Because he realized what Salman is doing. And as soon as he saw that, Salman accepted Islam and he told his long story, which we will give an entire, inshaAllah, uh, lesson about. We continue with Ali's uh, statement that... Uh, Whoever unexpectedly saw him, would stand in awe of him. In other words, just if you weren't expecting to see him, you saw him, you would just stop for a millisecond. So much reverence from his body emanating. He would stand in awe of him. And whoever accompanied him and got to know him would love him. Once you got to know him, you would get to love him. And those who described him would always say, now Ali is saying, this is what everybody else says, and this is exactly what everybody else says. What did he say? I have never seen anyone before him or after him, who was like him. This is exactly what Ali is saying, the other people say, and this is what already saying, Barat said this, and, and rubay said this, and so on, so all of the Sahaba are saying the same thing. I've never seen anyone before him or after him, like him. And of course there's a beautiful... Hadith which is well known to many of you, and that is the hadith of Jabir ibn Samura. Jabir ibn Samura radiallahu ta'ala an, who says that he was going home one day in the middle of the night, and it was a clear moon in the uh, sky, and he's walking home, and he just happens to pass by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, who was also out in the middle of the night. Uh, in the streets of Medina, and he was wearing a red hullah. The same red hullah that has already been described by al-Bara' ibn Azib, Red hullah like the red over covering. And he said, I looked at the face of the Prophet ﷺ, and I looked at the full moon. Now he's physically comparing the two. Right? Well, that's amazing, he's literally comparing the two. I looked at the face of the Prophet and there is the full moon. For wallahi, he said, he was more beautiful in my eyes than the full moon. And this really shows us that Allah had given the Prophet not just these physical, but these spiritual characteristics, that is just emanating from him. And one of the best uh, examples of this, is the fact that many people accepted Islam, just by seeing his face. The most famous convert, like this, is the chief rabbi of the Jews of Medina. And his name was Abdullah ibn Salam. Abdullah ibn Salam was the chief rabbi of the Jews. And he was the most respected of the Yahud. And he heard this man coming, claiming to be a prophet. So he said, "Let me." and this was the first day that the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina. The first day. And so he said, let me go see. Now, he wants to go see what his message is, right? Notice, now he's describing in the first person, the hadith is in Bukhari. He's describing the first person. He said, as soon as I saw him. Now, he's not coming to discuss theology. He's not coming to convert to Islam. He's simply coming to see what the commotion is, to see who this guy is, right? He goes, as soon as I saw him, عرفت أن وجهه ليس بوجه كاذب. Soon as I saw him, I knew that this face that he has cannot be the face of a liar. And one conversation and he accepts Islam right then and there. Just by looking at the face of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. and he was not the only one to do so. Along with the external beauty, of course our Prophet ﷺ was blessed with internal beauty. And he was blessed with humility. And he was blessed with modesty. And of his modesty, and of his simple lifestyle, is the famous hadith that you all know of Umar ibn al Khattab, who entered in upon him when the Prophet ﷺ was lying down, in his small, he had a small compartment in the masjid as well. And that was his own compartment. It was not with any, he did not have any wife living there. It is his own compartment. And in that compartment there was nothing other than a jug of water, and a bed that he would lie down on or sleep on. And this bed was made not out of the, leaves of the date palm, but out of the branches of the date palm. You know, many of you who have been to back home, there's the the, the, the bed that they make from that type of, uh, if you like, fiber, right? And then we put the mattress on top of the fiber, right? You know what I'm talking about, like that type of fiber you have here, and then you put the mattress on top of that. The Prophet ﷺ only had that fiber, if you like. He only had that with no mattress. And so he's lying down on that, and so when Umar comes in, he, he sits up to greet him. And when he sits up, you all know the famous hadith, that's when Umar sees that that fiber, that stick, those date palms, if you like, the, 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 the roots or the stalk, it has left a mark. And you can see the reddish. You know when you can lying down, you come up, you see the reddish mark. And Umar al-Khattab begins crying. When did this happen? This happened in the 7th, 8th year of the hijrah. This happened when the Prophet is the undisputed leader, not of all of Arabia right now, but at least of a large chunk of Arabia. And he has money coming in and pouring in. And so Umar cannot control himself. He begins to cry. He goes, Ya Rasulallah, how can how can we allow you to live like this? Look at the kings of Rome and Persia. Look at the Qayser, look at the Caesar, look at the Shahin Shah. look at these people. Look at how they live. Surely, Ya Rasulullah, you deserve better. Instead of saying, maybe you're right, O Umar, instead of saying, I'll think about it. He and got irritated at Umar. He said, Umar, is this what we're here for? O Umar, aren't you happy that they have the dunya and we have the akhirah? He rebuked him, this is not what our religion, I'm not here to do this. I have, I'm not even thinking about this. And Aisha describes that the bed of the Prophet ﷺ, this is in Tirmidhi as well. The bed that the Prophet ﷺ would sleep on was a leather skin. That was sometimes you would stuff it with date palm leaves. The bed that he would sleep on was leather. Leather is not what you sleep on. Leather is something you put on the, the saddle. right? Leather is not what you sleep on. But that was his bed. He goes, sometimes I would put some Some date palms to make leaves, to make it a little bit softer. And once it is narrated that the Prophet bed, one of his wives, she folded up her own half to give him extra, right? So she made it a little bit more comfortable. Because it was more comfortable, he slept longer than usual. And then when he woke up, he said, what happened? Who did this? So when she explained, he rebuked her and said, bring it back to the way it was. I need to pray my tahajjud basically. I need to wake up for tahajjud. Don't make my bed too soft for me. Now this is something subhanAllah, again, I'm the most guilty everybody here, like we buy our beds, mashaAllah, I don't know what the uh, ratings are, they are. these days they are different, this and that. We compare this now to the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't want this type of bed. He wanted a bed that is a little bit, little bit harsh, because it provides him now opportunity to pray tahajjud. And sometimes the Prophet ﷺ, as Aisha says, would not taste meat for six weeks. For six weeks he would not eat meat. And even by the time of the tabi'un, this was unbelievable. So Uruwa, 40 years later is saying, oh my mother. Urwa is his, his nephew, but she calls him mother because the mother of the believers. Urwa is saying, oh my mother, how did you live? Now even for us, six weeks without any type of serious food if you like, even within 40 years, Ur was saying, how did you live? So she said, by eating al-aswadan, the two dark things, dates and dirty water. Because they didn't have this clean filtered water, did they? They get their water from the well, they get their water from the streams, and there is no purification system. Even the water is going to be filthy in terms of looking at it. So she said, we subsisted off of these two aswadan. And once... Abd rahman ibn Auf, now Abd rahman ibn Auf, as you all know, he was a businessman. He started poor. The famous hadith you all know. He started with nothing, right? He came, and he came with only the clothes on his back. And that famous sahabi of the Ansar said, look, I have so many things, I'll split everything in half. Everything in half. And Abdul rahman ibn Auf said, may Allah bless you, keep your wealth, tell me where is the suqh. And he had some butter with him. So he came and he started buying and selling, buying and selling, buying and selling, and slowly he became one of the richest people of all of Medina. One of the richest people of all of Medina, and he came with nothing on his back. And so once, many years after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, Rahman ibn Auf now is now living that life, and he is brought a dish with meat and with bread. And of course to this day, meat and bread is the staple food item this is now what you do. this is what you pay good bucks for to get a nice steak here you know this is what you do this is to this day meat and bread of course rice they never ate it the Prophet never ate rice rice was not a commodity that was available in arabia at the time rice is a water crop you're not going to get rice in arabia so he would only eat bread so he was brought meat and bread and as soon as he saw this platter he began to cry he was asked o oh, Abdurrahman ibn auf why are you crying He said the Prophet ﷺ, till the day that he died, he never ate wheat bread. Forget this fine refined bread. He never ate wheat bread to his fill. Forget with the meat. He never ate wheat bread to his fill and not even his family. Not one day they could eat to their full. And I worry, he says. That Allah subhanahu wa taala has allowed us to remain for such a long time that we're seeing all of these blessings come, and the prophethood has gone on to something that is better. In other words, I'm worried that I'm getting everything back now, and I want something back then. And I'm worried that Allah is allowing me to live much longer, and everybody else has uh, gone by. And as for Aisha, many times it is narrated that she will begin to cry when good food was given to her. Now remember, Aisha, she lived until uh, 40 years after the death of the Prophet And the Um ummah, began to, the money began to come in as they say. And so she would get gifts, and she would get a stipend from the government, and she would get, so she would get, and, and alhamdulillah she would be generous with the poor. But sometimes people would gift her large items, good food. And it is narrated multiple times, that when she saw all of this food, she would begin to cry. And she would say the same thing, that the Prophet wasallam never ate. Rusty bread or hard bread to his fill even one day in his life. He never got to eat all of this full. Of course he ate bread but to his full even one day of his life. And we all know the story of the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr and Umar. The famous story reported in Tirmidhi that Umar ibn al-Khattab did not have anything to eat. And I just like to point out here that the sahaba lived very tough times in the early part of Medina. Before the conquest began, before the money began, began pouring in, Medina was a very difficult place to live in. And when you didn't have dates, there's only one season dates are there. Once they run out for the rest of the six months, you are living a very difficult life in the middle of the desert. And there's many stories of this nature. And so once Umar ibn Khattab is walking in the streets, and he sees the Prophet ﷺ sitting, and this is at noon. And at noon, nobody walks in the streets in the summertime. It's too hot. So he says to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, what are you doing outside? And the Prophet ﷺ knows that Umar is outside for one reason. And that is he doesn't have food at home. So he says the same reason as you. Same reason as you. I mean, I'm just sitting outside, there's nothing to eat at home. And as they're sitting there, Abu Bakr as well is walking. Because you cannot sit at home and you're hungry, you just want to walk around, just go outside. And the three of them, the three of them are sitting there just talking, when one of the Sahaba, Abu haytham is rushing back to work, to home from work. So he finishes his chores, he's rushing home. So he says, Ya Rasulullah, what are you three doing at this time of the day? And so Umar says, well, we didn't have anything to eat, so we're just sitting here basically talking. you know." So Abu haytham says, "No, this is not possible. This is not possible. That the three best people, now you're sitting here. So he tells, he knows that he has a goat, an old goat at home, So he tells them, come to my house and I'll give you food. I'll prepare food for you, come to my house. So he rushes home, he only has one goat that is past the age of giving milk, it's an old goat. So he tells his wife, by Allah, we need to sacrifice this goat. We need to get rid of the goat. And you cook the food, I will knead the dough, we're gonna make some bread. So we will give him meat and bread. And so the Prophet Abu Bakr and Umar, they came and they ate meat and bread, which is of course the the uh, luxurious food item of that time and to this day. And then what was the response of the Prophet when he finished all of this? After not having anything at home, he reminded Abu Bakr and Umar, he reminded them that they left their houses hungry. And Allah gave them this meal. Ya Abu Bakr and Umar, ثُمَّ لَتُسْأَلُنَّ يَوْمَئِذٍ Anin Allah is going to ask you on that day about this food. What did you do with it? And did you thank me enough for it? SubhanAllah, I mean, Wallahi one of us, yani we, three, ta- three meals a day, we don't even think about Allah's blessings, right? And, and the Prophet is so conscious that Allah is going to ask you about this na'im. you're going to be asked about this blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you. And as for His humility, the Prophet ﷺ frequently rode donkeys. And even though he had the money to purchase a horse and a camel, and he had a camel, al qaswa, he had a camel. But the Prophet ﷺ had no problem riding a donkey frequently. And during the battle of Badr, the Prophet ﷺ had to distribute the camels amongst the entire group of people. How many people came to Badr? You all know. How many people were in Badr? Three hundred and... 14, 15. And there were roughly 75 camels. Do the math, how many people per camel? Three or four. Three or four people per camel. Okay, every single camel was given. Now some people had horses, others. So roughly it came out to three people per camel. Has to be divided. And so the Prophet ﷺ assigned Ali and Abu Lubaba to himself with the camel. So the one camel with these three people. And everybody else has their own three camel. Now, Put yourself in the shoes of Ali and Abu Lubaba. You're supposed to share a camel with the Prophet And what are you gonna say? Take it, it's yours. So Ali says, Ya Rasulullah, both of us are young men. You know, he's trying to make him feel as if we're doing this, Not we're not doing you a favor, we just, Ya Rasulullah, I am young, I'm in my 30s, Abu Lubaba is also young. Ya Rasulullah, we're young. You you, you go ahead and ride the camel. Now, there's many things. The Prophet could have said, Okay, fine, And subhanAllah, he is the leader by the way. And wallahi, forget everything aside, the leader deserves extra protection. Forget religiosity, spiritual, the leader deserves extra respect, right? The commander, he, he's not the person that should be treated like the private, right? The four star, five star general, you, he's reached a level now, you don't treat him like the private, Right? So he could have said, okay, fine. And nobody would have said anything. Or he even could have said, no, no, let's all share it. But he didn't want to make them feel that I'm doing you a favor by doing this. What did he say? He smiled back at them. And he said that neither are the two of you any stronger than me, and nor am I in any lesser need of the reward than you two. I also need the ajr of walking. We're gonna share. Subhanallah. Look at, neither are the two of you any strong. He couldn't fight with younger. I mean, Ali is younger. So he says, neither are the two of you any stronger than me. Okay, you might be younger, but in terms of physical health, yes, I am just as strong as you. And nor am I in any lesser need of Allah's rewards for walking and struggling. So we're going to share the camel. And so, he was a man of his word, and he shared the camel, even though, truth be told, it was... Not necessary at all, right? He is the leader, he is Rasulullah, and yet he shared the camel with them. And as for his good manners, subhanAllah, how much can we say about his good manners? Anas ibn Malik said, and Anas ibn Malik lived one of the longest of the sahaba. He lived until he was over 110 years old, Anas ibn Malik. He lived one of the longest lives. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ made dua for him, right? After all that he had done, one day his mother came, Anas mother. And she said, Ya Rasulullah, your little servant, Khuwaydimuka Anas, your little servant Anas, he's done so much for you, make dua for him. That's all the mother wanted, wasn't it, right? She just wants the barakah from the Prophet وسلم. Ya Rasulullah, Khuwaydimuka Anas, make dua for him. So the Prophet وسلم said, O oh Allah, Barik lahu, give him baraka in his life, and in his wealth, and in his progeny. One dua. And Anas lived to see the results of this dua give him baraka in his life he was one of the last of the sahaba to die and he lived to be over 110 at a time when the average death rate was what 30 28 something like this he lived to be 110 and he said give him baraka in his money they used to say that if anas turned a rock over he would find gold underneath it he was so rich that anything he did just it's as they say the gold touch right it was like that. And people would love to become business partners with Anas, right? And they would just say, look, just, just sign the paper, we'll do the money, everything. They just wanted to get the baraka. I mean, not sign the paper, you get the point. Anything, just be a part of this, right? People would love to be business partners with Anas, because they knew it would be successful. And he amassed a large fortune at the end of his life. And he had so many grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren, he couldn't even count them. Could not even count them. In his own lifetime, because the Prophet said, Bariklahu fi ahlihi wa fi waladhi fi umurihi wa fi ahlihi wa fi malihi. And these three things the Prophet made dua for, and all three of them he was given that barakah. This Anas ibn Malik, he says that I served the Prophet for 10 years. I served him, I didn't just visit him, I lived with him for 10 years. And not once did he rebuke me. Not once did the word "uff" come from his mouth. Now, uff, as you know, is the least word to express irritation. It's not even a word of anger. It's not a word of it's the word to express irritation. It's like just like that. Like that. It's just that is the equivalent of uf. And the Prophet ﷺ never, ever said the word uf. And Anna said, he never said to me, why did you do this? And he never said to me, why did you not do that? And subhanallah, as they say, by how a person treats his family, you know him. By a person's treatment of his inner circle, that's how you know him. What side we show to our family, to our spouses, to our children, that is the real us. It's easy to be somebody else in the masjid. It's easy to be somebody else in the workplace. But who you are in front of your wife, in front of your kids, that is the real you. And Anas ibn Malik is saying, for 10 years, I never heard the word, uff, come from his mouth. That is the perfection of his manners. And it's a beautiful narration as well later on, that once the Prophet ﷺ sent me on a chore to do, and on the way I saw some kids playing. So I started playing with them. Now, imagine the process of telling, go tell somebody something, go do this and that. Anas is a kid in the end of the day, you know, he's seven years old in the end of the day, right? So he's going to do the chore, he finds some kids playing, and I completely forgot about the chore. And then the Prophet came out in search that whatever the chore was, it's not happening, right? So the person, maybe he calls somebody, it's not happening. So he's searching, what happened? And he finds Anas playing with the street children there, right? And so, I, I, somebody held on to my ears and picked me up, and I turned around, and it was the Prophet smiling at me. It's like playing with him. It's like, you forget your chore now. Playing with him, not even getting irritated at him, right? And subhanAllah, where, where do we stand, when it comes to our own families, and how... Easy, and I'm just as guilty as the rest of you. How easy it is to get irritated and get angry. But again, he is our role model, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And even when people showed him the utmost contempt and the utmost disrespect, he maintained his dignity and his composure. Once a group of Yahud came, and they wanted to mock him, and they said, winking at one another, Assalamu Alaikum, Assalamu Alaikum, not Assalam, Assam. And Assam means, may death be upon you, may a curse be upon you. It's like a, they're changing it, right? And they're winking at one another. And so, the Prophet ﷺ maintained his composure and said, Wa alaykum. Maintained his composure. Aisha got so angry, that from behind the curtain she screamed out. It's like, may you be cursed, and may Allah jal cause you to perish. How dare you say this to the Prophet ﷺ? To which the, uh, the Prophet ﷺ rebuked Aisha. And said, calm down, O Aisha, calm down. Don't you know that whatever is gentle is beautiful? And whenever gentleness is in something, it makes it beautiful. And whenever harshness is in something, it makes it ugly. So after they left, she said, Ya Rasulullah, how could you have controlled your temper? They came and they cursed you and they said, assalamu alaykum. So he responded, didn't you hear my response? Wa alaykum, back to you. So what I said, back to you. But he maintained his dignity and his composure. He didn't stoop to their level by doing what they did. He said, yes, you want to do this? Okay, back to you as well. And as for his bravery, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ali ibn Abi Talib says, and we're going to talk about this in the battle of Badr, this relates to the battle of Badr. That when the fighting would become severe, we would seek refuge around the Prophet ﷺ. When the fighting would become severe, we would seek refuge around the Prophet sallallahu wasallam. And Anas ibn Malik said that once in Medina, in the middle of the night, the people heard a loud commotion and a loud sound coming. And they didn't know what it was. So timidly, they came outside. Their house is wondering, what is this noise? Is an enemy attacking? Is there uh, some type of beast out on the loose? What is happening? And they found that the Prophet ﷺ had already gone in the direction of the sound alone. And he found the horse of Abu Talha, and he simply rode it without a saddle. That's manliness. <laughs> without a saddle. And he's galloping towards the sound, and he had his sword around his neck, because he's galloping without a saddle. And he's coming back to the people of Medina saying, you have nothing to fear, I've checked it out, you have nothing to fear. Anasud Malik is narrating one incident, right? What does that show us of the bravery? That he hears the sound, he's the first person to go, jump on a horse without even the saddle, takes his sword, run, and then he's running back to the people of Medina. I've checked it out, nothing to fear. Whatever it was, it wasn't anything for them to be worried about. This is the bravery of the Prophet ﷺ. Once generosity, as for his generosity, the Prophet ﷺ would never refuse any request. He would never refuse any asking of him. And that is why one of, the, one of the sahabiyat said, that it was possible for any little girl to go to the hand of the Prophet ﷺ and ask her to do something for her. Ask him to do something for her. The little girl had some help, she needed maybe to carry something, and she would have no fear to go and ask the Prophet ﷺ to help her out. And it is once narrated that the Prophet ﷺ was wearing a garment that had Holes in it. It was not appropriate that the Prophet was wearing a garment like this. So one of the Sahaba gifted him a very beautiful and a very good garment. And he went home and he wore that garment and he came outside. One of the Sahaba immediately said, Ya Rasulullah, can you give me this garment as a gift? So the Prophet turned to him and said, Naam, yes. He went back home. He wore the same clothes that he had just took off. He'd literally been wearing it for one minute. And he came back wearing the tattered garment, and he gave him the new one. After a while, he went back inside his house. All of the sahaba, they jumped on this other one. How could you have asked the Prophet You knew he wouldn't... Look at what they said. You knew that he would never turn down a request. Look at how they rebuked him. You knew that he wouldn't say no to you. How could you do this? So he said, before you get angry at me, I'm not doing this to wear. I want to use this as my kafan to show the generosity of the Prophet in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I want to use this as my cloth to be buried in. That's why I did it, right? So he had his own reason for doing that. I mean, you know, no doubt, perhaps it was better to leave it for the process. But he had his own reason. I'm not doing this to take it off as I want this to be worn around me. That in the qabr, this is what I want to be wearing, and so I asked him to give it to me. Along with all of these, the Prophet ﷺ actually was also a person who was blessed with a great sense of humor. He was blessed with a great sense of humor. And having humor shows your humanity. Having humor shows your humanity. It shows your down-to-earthliness, as they say. And there are so many instances of the jokes of the Prophet wasallam, And all of the jokes of the Prophet wasallam, they are pure, and they are clean, and they are truthful. Even his jokes are true. Even when he caused people to laugh, it is something that is true. And there are many instances of this. And of the instances is an old lady coming to the Prophet wasallam, An old lady coming to the Prophet saying, O Messenger of Allah, Make dua that Allah causes me to enter Jannah. And she's an old lady, wizened, you can tell like, you know, 70 years old, very old lady. So the Prophet ﷺ looked at her and said, Oh my aunt, haven't you been informed that old ladies cannot enter Jannah? Didn't you study theology? I mean, don't you know? Old ladies cannot enter Jannah. And she began wailing and crying, and what am I gonna do now? And then he told her that, Don't cry. Don't cry. For wallahi, all ladies cannot enter Jannah. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make her into a young fair maiden. And then she will enter Jannah. It's a joke. She was supposed to be like, you know, give her glad tidings is that you're not going to be an old lady when you enter jannah you're going to be a young you're going to go back to your 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 days as a lovely maiden that's how you will enter jannah and then he recited the verse inna ansha'nahunna insha'a so that we bring them forth with a new beginning inna ansha'nahunna insha'a we bring them forth with a new beginning we're going to take them back to that uh, beginning and the story of Aisha radiAllahu anha when the prophet was on his deathbed he was on his deathbed. He literally has four or five days left to live. Of course, the Sahaba don't know this. They're hoping that this is just a disease, and a fever is going to go away. He's literally on his deathbed. And it so happened that, Aisha herself felt a little bit sick on one of the days, and she had a severe headache. She had a severe headache. And so, she was crying out, Oh my head, oh my head. crying out. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Rather, oh my head, I have a worse headache than you, oh my head. And so, Aisha radiallahu anha, to calm her down, the Prophet said, and because he, he understands he's about to die, he understands he has a premonition, if you like, and perhaps he even knew that he is about to die in a few days. So to calm her down, to crack some jokes, and the days of his death, he says, oh Aisha, and what would you lose if you died right now? and the one to do ghusl for you, and to bury you, and to pray your janazah would be me. In other words, what a great honor, right? What would you lose? Now, he's probably doing this to basically break the ice, and you know, bring the topic of death up, you know, bring like this. So, saying, what would you lose? But he's the one that's about to die, right? So he's saying, what would you lose? And so Aisha radiallahu anha, she smirks back at him and she says I'm sure you would like that to happen because then you would be free to go to your other wives <laughs> because Aisha was that woman who had the grasp on him right so she's saying I know the one I go away khalas you will you will have free access to all of them after that now this joking that he's doing on his deathbed right subhanallah Scholars of fiqh have derived fiqh from this. And they have talked about the permissibility of a spouse doing ghusl for his or her spouse. From this joke, they derive fiqh. Because he never spoke except the truth, right? From this joke, They derive fiqh. And a shawkani has a chapter. The chapter concerning the permissibility of a husband giving his wife a bath of of, of the the ghusl uh, of the uh, uh, death and vice versa. And then he mentions this hadith. Fiqh is derived from a joke of the Prophet ﷺ. And a very uh, beautiful story reported in Tirmidhi as well. That there was a young man by the name of Zahir. By the name of Zahir. Whom the Prophet ﷺ used to love a lot. And we don't know much about him. Wallahi, I looked up as much as I could. We don't know much about this person, Zahir. We don't know hardly anything about him. This is his most famous story. But there was something about him that caused the Prophet ﷺ to love this man. And he would have an immense amount of affinity for him. He was a simple, sincere believer. We don't know much about him for his jihad, for his knowledge, for his ghazawat. He just simply seems to be a nice guy that the Prophet ﷺ liked. Once the Prophet ﷺ saw him in the merchant, in the in the suq, in the marketplace, selling some uh, some things. And he's screaming out, who's gonna buy this from me? Who's gonna buy this from me? So in those days they had the suq, and they mentioned the market, they mentioned what they have, who's gonna buy this from me? And so the Prophet ﷺ came, from behind, quietly. He's literally playing a practical joke on Zahir. He came quietly from behind. And he grabbed him. Zahir is standing up. He grabbed him from behind and he basically locked him. He gave him a lock, a bear lock, a hug, right? So Zahir is trying to see who is this? What are you doing? Let go of me. I'm trying to sell my stuff here. And when he saw it was none other than the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam immediately he became limp, and he touched as much of the chest of the Prophet wasallam as he could to get the barakah from his body. Soon as he recognized him, he went limp. And he began to touch the, uh, the body of the Prophet And then the Prophet wasallam began joking, and crying out in the suq, Who is gonna buy this from me? Who is gonna buy this abd from me? This slave from me? Right? So Zahir was crying out, who's going to buy this merchandise? Now he's being clapped, and the Prophet is saying, who's going to buy this Abd? Now, in a marketplace in those days, when you're saying, who's going to buy the Abd, you mean the slave, right? But of course, even the Prophet is true. Zahir was not an Abd to mankind, but he was an Abd of Allah. So even in this joke, he's not saying any lie. Even in this joke he's not lying. So who will purchase this abd from me? So Zahir says, Ya Rasulullah, in that case you're gonna get a very bad bargain if you're gonna sell me. I'm not gonna be very, very expensive. And the Prophet said, إِنَّكَ لَثَمِينٌ You are very expensive in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhanallah. It's a beautiful story here that shows us the humanity of the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam and as for his love for his ummah, and inshallah with this we will uh, conclude, we have so much more to go, but unfortunately we have to uh, save things for other lessons and whatnot, and open time for Q&A, and as for his love for his ummah, as for his love for his ummah, and this is a point of theology as well, that the Prophet ﷺ had an immense amount of love for his own ummah, and Allah Azza wa says in the Quran, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِّنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ there has come to you a messenger from amongst you. Azizun alayhi ma He finds it difficult to bear your hardships. He finds it difficult to bear your hardships. حريص alaykum He's ever eager for you. He's حريص. It's like how you describe how a mother is or a parent is. He's حريص for the child. He's eager to bring good for you. بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ Raufur Rahim. Allāh uses two words which are actually names of Allāh with the alif lam, ar-Ra'uf ar-Rahīm. Right? He strip away the alif lam, then you can use it in a human being. So the prophethood is described by ar-Ra'uf and ar-Rahīm that He is Ra'uf and Rahīm. To whom? To the believers. بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ Rahim. To the believers, He is Ra'uf. Ra'uf means full of compassion. Ra'uf is a type of tenderness in mercy. And Rahim is general mercy, as you know. So Ra'fa is a type of compassionate mercy. It's a special type of mercy. And it is very appropriate that a mother or father have this for the child. This is what ra'fa is, that you want the best. So Allah Azza wa Jal, who is ar-ra'uf, is describing the Prophet as being ra'uf for the believers. Bil mu'mineen ra'ufun Rahim, And the Prophet once, was reciting the Quran and he came across a number of verses. Of them is the famous verse when Ibrahim alayhi salam says Rabbi Inna Asani ghafurur Rahim. Ibrahim is making a dua for his people. Oh Allah whoever follows me then he is of me. Whoever disobeys me then you are forgiving. Even him, O oh Allah, forgive. This is what Ibrahim is saying, basically. For those who are following me, then of course he's with me, O oh Allah, protect him. But even those, woman Asani, even those, فَإِنَّكَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ, forgive them. And he came across the verse of Isa السلام, and this is in Surah Ma'idah. Into تُعَذِبْهُمْ فَإِنَّهُمْ عِبَادُكَ وَإِنْ تَغْفِرَ لَهُمْ فَإِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ. That, O oh Allah, if you forgive them, sorry, if you punish them, then. It's your right, they're your servants. But if you forgive them, then you are Azizun Hakim. In other words, I want you to forgive them. So he recites two verses. Both of them are regarding prophets making dua for their ummas. And then he starts thinking of his own ummah. And he raises his hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he says, Ya Allah ummati, Allahumma ummati, O oh Allah my ummah, oh O Allah my ummah. And he began to cry thinking about his ummah and we are a part of that ummah thinking about his ummah after reading ibrahim's dua for his ummah and isa's dua for his ummah now he's thinking of his ummah and he is saying oh allah my ummah oh allah my ummah and so allah azza told jibril go to muhammad sallallahu and ask him why is he crying this hadith is sahih muslim is authentic hadith very beautiful hadith ask him why is he crying so Jibril came to him and asked him, "Why are you crying?" So and and of course Allah knew why he was crying, and Allah knew why he was crying when He sent Jibril, and Jibril found out, and the Prophet ﷺ said, "That I am crying thinking of my ummah and thinking of what will be their fate." And so Jibril went back to Allah, and Allah ﷻ said, "Ya Jibril, izhab ila Muhammad." O Jibreel, go back to Muhammad, له, and tell him, inna ummatika nasu'uka. We are going to please you for your ummah. Because we want to please you, we're going to bless your ummah. nasu'uka. And we're not going to cause you any irritation. In other words, because of you, ya Rasulullah, that you want your ummah to be blessed so much, inna la we're going to please you and we're not going to cause you any harm and irritation and the greatest indication of the love that the prophet sallallahu had for us the greatest indication and this is a something that each and every one of us should think deeply about i want you to think about this not just today for the rest of your lives what sacrifice the prophet sallallahu did with this particular issue and that is that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given every single prophet one request. As we say in English, one wish. One request. Every single prophet, this is a blessing that Allah has given them. That one dua that they really want to be answered, they will get that dua. And some of the prophets, they used it against their people who disobeyed them. Because they're so frustrated, they used it against their people. And so for example, Nuh salam after making da'wah for 950 years, he became so frustrated, he said, لا تدل على الأرض من الكافرين ديارة Oh Allah, I don't want you to leave one house of kafirs on this earth. And so Allah destroyed all of the humanity of the time. And that was one town. One town. There was one, The whole town was destroyed. And only Nuh and his three daughters came from there. Nuh and his three daughters. That's it. All of humanity started again because Noah made that dua. And Ibrahim salam made that dua for the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. رَبَّنَا وَبَعَذْ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا O oh Allah, send from amongst them a rasool. So the Prophet said, and we'll talk about this next week inshaAllah, Abi I am the du'a of my father Ibrahim. This was the du'a he made. I am that du'a. Right? And, Musa alayhi salam, made du'a against Fir'aun. Because Fir'aun had, he was a mass murderer, he was a genocidal killer. He had killed these babies of, imagine, you know, this is basically, he was the Hitler of his time, Fir'aun. Right? So Musa made a du'a, that, Oh Allah, do not guide this person. Whatever happens, then m- never guide this person. And that's exactly what happened that Fir'aun was never guided until even he tried to accept Islam, it was too late. It was too late. And so many we can get examples. Um, Sulaiman <laughs> right? Sulaiman made the dua. This was the special dua. His dua was, Qala, Rabbi, habli mulkan la li Give me... A dominion, a lot of people translate this as a kingdom, this is not correct. Mulk here is control, not just a kingdom. Give me a dominion, give me that control that you have given to no other human before me. This was his dua, I want powers that nobody has had. So Allah gave him powers that nobody had. فَسَخَّرْنَا لَهُ bi We made for him the wind. And so the whole legends of the flying carpets and stuff, it comes from Suleiman. Suleiman would sit on a carpet, and the carpet would take him. One night it would take him the journey of one month and bring him back. Take him all the way across the world. And bring, That's where this journey and legend comes from. And the trapping of the genies and the bottles, and all, it all comes from Suleiman, right? فَسَخَرْنَا لَهُ الْرِيحَ تَجْرِبْ أَمْرِهُ رُخَانَ حَيْتُهُ أَصَالٍ وَالشَّيَاطِينَ And the shayateen, we made them subservient. <laughs> they were building and they were diving deep and they were doing everything for suleiman bringing the treasures of the the ocean and building palaces for him. So Allah gave control of the jinns, mighty and powerful creatures. The control of the jinns was given to Surayman, and he could speak. <laughs> we told him how to speak to animals. So all of the animals became his servants. That he had junudahum insi wal wa He had the beasts that were his. That were his, under his command. This is the dua of Sulaiman, right? You see now what this dua can give you if you want it. It can give you a lot. Our Prophet had the biggest dua. And he had the greatest dua. He has this one dua. And so what did he use it for? The Prophet said that every single Rasul and every single Nabi, Allah has given him one dua that he has guaranteed that he will respond to. And every single Nabi has used up this du'a for himself in this world. Everyone has used it up, except for me. I have saved it, and I have not used it. And I will not use it in this dunya. I have saved it, اختبأتها, I have kept it, liummati. For my ummah. I have kept it for my ummah, and I will use it for them on the day of judgment. And the dua will be, Oh Allah, forgive my entire ummah. Billions of people. This is the dua of the Prophet My anybody who believed in me, Oh Allah, forgive him. And Allah will accept that dua in that. Every single Muslim, as we all know, shall eventually enter Jannah. Where did this come from? From the dua of the Prophet Muhammad Every single Muslim who believes in this Prophet and who acted upon even a little bit of his teachings, no matter how sinful he was, eventually, and this of course eventually you might go through Jahannam but eventually you will be forgiven and you will enter Jannah. And where did this come from? Because the Prophet ﷺ saved that one dua, that one request that he could have done, he saved it and he sacrificed it for us. And there can be no greater sacrifice than that, and that shows us the love that he had. And what is the purpose of all of this love? We conclude by mentioning a beautiful hadith in Bukhari that Anas ibn Malik narrates, when he says that a man came to the Prophet ﷺ, and he said, O Messenger of Allah, when is the day of judgment? Mata And this is a question that has no benefit. And it's not going to gain you anything. And the Prophet doesn't know when is the day of judgment. So he said, in, 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 instead of saying, I don't know. Instead of saying, what do you care? He asked him, he directed him to a more pertinent question. He said, what have you prepared for it when it comes? Instead of asking, when is the day of judgment? What have you prepared for it? And so, the man was silent for a while. It completely jolted his perspective, right? And this shows us, when somebody comes and asks you a foolish question, don't make fun of him. Don't make him feel... Direct him to something more pertinent, more useful. And so the man was completely shocked, he remained silent. And then he spoke and he said, I really don't have that much salah, and that much siyam, and that much sadaqah. أُحِبُّ اللَّهَ ورسوله. But I have a genuine love of Allah and His Messenger. So the Prophet wasallam said, The man shall be with he whom he loves. Anna says, We were never as happy and overjoyed as we were. Then on that day, when we heard that a man shall be with he whom he loves, because we loved the Prophet wasallam, and we wanted to be with him, but we thought that because our levels would be so different, we'd never get to see him. But when he said this hadith, we were never as happy as we were on that day. With the realization that the person is with he whom he loves. And so... Let us have a genuine love for the Prophet wasallam. Let us understand the sacrifices he made for us. Let us understand what a great personality he was. And most importantly, let us study his life and times so that we can implement and follow his teachings and come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says in the Qur'an, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِي يُحْبِبِكُمُ اللَّهُ وَيَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ ذُنُوبَكُمْ Say, if you truly love Allah, then follow me, Allah will love you and forgive your sins. Follow me, Allah will love you and forgive your sins. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst those who truly follow the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and may he forgive our sins. Wa akhir